you have four guys who are 210 or 220 pound guys jumping in a sled, you know, the size of a bathtub. You have to jump in together and then get in an aerodynamic position. So strong, fast, look good in suit, uh, agile and bendy. Are you interested? That's my question. <laughs> Do you fit that description? This is the Geese Download, a podcast from the University of Illinois' Geese College of Business. I'm your host, Tim Sinclair, and today my guest is former Olympic bobsledder and recent Geese MBA graduate, Brock Kreitzberg. As an athlete, Brock was quite familiar with the need for speed and agility and strength. But once his career in sport was over, Brock quickly learned that similar traits could be valuable in the working world too. And whether it be bobsledding or business, both took an awful lot of hard work. So I'm interested how one gets into bobsledding at all. Like for, you know, in junior high and high school, you can join the swim team or the basketball team or play football. There, at least no high school I've ever been to has a bobsled team. So, so how does one jump from just being an athlete to being that type of an athlete? Well, I played football growing up through college, through high school, college, and um, was in minicamp with Tampa Bay. And I wound up not being signed by the NFL team and wound up going to grad school 20 years ago for an, another degree. And, you know, I had an itch to compete again. You know, it's in your blood. You compete for so long, you want to do it again. And so I started to train to get back into football. Well, the facility I was training at I was in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. The bobsled team was training with the same type of facility in Salt Lake City. So they did a three or four month recruiting process where they brought athletes in and cut athletes. And out of that came three of us. I mean, there are very few bobsledders in the world. And unless you live by one of uh, the bobsled tracks, there's four of them in North America, you're probably not going to be inclined to pursue you know, that sport. So what's required? Um, obviously, you need to be strong and fast. Um, and I would I would imagine it might depend on what part of the bobsled you are sitting in, whether you're driving or, or not. Um, what are some of the things they were looking for that, that you brought to the table? It's a second sport for most athletes. And most of them either played football or track. I ran track and field. And so you have to be fast. You have to be powerful. And explosive. Um, that's for the push athletes because in a bobsled, there's there's four guys. So there, there's two or four guys depending on what what you're doing discipline. But the driver is you know he's in the front. That takes a lot of technical skill that that's learned over time, many many years. But as a push athlete, you can you can uh, learn how to do that fairly quickly. I mean, I I was recruited, and within you know the first several months of learning how to bobsled, I was. I was on the national team. So I just had those qualities that they were looking for in a bobsledder. And you had to be strong, you know. Also, you have to be fairly fit. You know, you, you wear a full body speed suit and it's it can be humbling if you're not <laughs> if you're not in good shape. So uh, those are, you know, some people have those characteristics and, and some people don't. Some may have one or the other, but they don't have like them put together where you know you have to push this five hundred pound sled on ice, you know, as as fast and as hard as you can for five seconds. And then, you know, you have four guys who are 210 or 220 pound guys jumping in a sled, you know, the size of a bathtub, maybe a little bit bigger, b bigger. You have to jump in 
together and then get in an aerodynamic position. So you um, take some athleticism as well to do that. So strong, fast, look good in suit, uh, agile, and bendy. Are you interested? That's my question. <laughs> do you fit that description? Uh, you know what? Uh, other than the bendy, uh, I, I probably could have pulled it off maybe 15 uh, years ago, but I'm not sure I'm qualified anymore. <laughs> well, it's never too late. You know, they do recruit athletes every year. Yeah, I, probably I have not a connection. 43-year-old athletes, I uh, wouldn't think. Well, well, <laughs> I don't know. Never say never. Um, so at what point do you realize that – Obviously, within a few months, you're on the national team. You realize you're pretty good. Do you start to have aspirations that that you never thought you might have at that point for Olympics and World Championships and things? Yeah, it, yeah, certainly. You know, I always wanted to be in the NFL, and uh, but obviously that that didn't work. And so as I started to realize, like I'm I'm pretty good, and then you start focusing your eyes on on the Olympics and. You know, there are athletes who train for years, for decades to be in the Olympics. And so as a bobsledder, you know, those athletes have, um, you know, been working their craft, whether it's football or track for decades as well. And so with bobsledding, you can take that type of training and redirect it to bobsledding. So you have the strength and the power. You just have to learn the technical aspect of pushing a bobsled. And so, you know, as it gets, you know, as it gets closer, you know, year after year, the Olympics are getting closer and, and you're starting, you know, I was starting to compete in world championships thinking this is a real possibility that I could make the Olympics, but you know, in Bob setting, you know, it's a team sport, but each person can be replaced at any time. So, you know, you're competing on a team, but it's very, very much like you're competing for your spot. And so you could, if you're not performing well that, uh, that week, the next week you could be removed. And so you're always, you know, you're all the ways, you're only as good as your last race in, in bobsledding as a push athlete. So, um, and maybe I'm making something out of nothing here, and I, I want to hear the story from you. But as I was reading up on your career, I noticed that when you were running with USA 2 mm-hmm. and um, Steve Holcomb was the driver, correct? Correct. Then you either lost that spot or were removed from that spot. And I don't know what he has to do with it or not, but, but then later you got good, jumped up to USA one. And then when he was driving USA one, a few years later, he's like, Oh yeah, this guy's pretty good. I want him to come back. Was that as awkward as it seems on paper? No, it's kind of the bobsledding world. And so the year before the, the games for the world championships, um, the uh, the coaches and Steve had felt I wasn't pushing well, so I was actually removed from World Championships. So I didn't compete on on his team, and uh, that was devastating, right? Because usually, whoever's on the World Championship uh, World Cup team for World Championship team for the previous year, they have a very good chance of making the Olympic team. So it was like, there's a I may not my aspirations of making the Olympics may not happen. So that was devastating, but it's also a, a turning point of like, I've got to change some things in what I'm doing, my training, my diet. I've got to be more disciplined because I do not want this to happen again next year. And so uh, I didn't compete with him. Uh, the following year, again, kind of, I was, uh, he put me back on his team. I was pushing well, but uh, I was pushing so well uh, Olympic year that actually, that was USA 2, USA 2. About a month and a half before the Olympics, I was pushing so well. I was 
promoted to USA One, which was a big deal because we were, you know, USA One was ranked um, number one in the world. We were predicted to win a gold medal. Uh, and the the Olympics prior in 2002, my, the driver had won a silver medal. So now it's like, okay, now I'm not just talking about uh, the Olympics. I'm talking about like we were a medal contender. However, as any Olympian will tell you, there's a huge difference between being a medal contender and a medal winner. You know, there's so much pressure going in and anticipation of making the Olympic team. And then once you make it, it's like then you, your eyes turn to winning a medal. And so there's you, you can start to feel the pressure, but also almost taste a gold medal. Right. And so, you know, I, I'm watching the Olympics now. I have I have four kids. So I'm watching them. Um, and, you know, I was watching the opening ceremonies and it almost brought me to tears because you know, it's such an incredible and once in a life, well, depending on what athlete you are, but it's like once in a for me, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity that I had to walk in the opening ceremonies representing the United States of America. I was one of 211 athletes at that time to represent on the, the winter Olympic team. And I was one of uh, seven athletes on the U.S. bobsled team. So it was an incredible, incredible experience. And, you know, we were predicted to win a gold medal. And unfortunately, we, we just didn't perform when, uh, um, when the race came, when we finished seventh. And so that was uh, just kind of devastating, right? You're at the top of the, the athletic world. There's high expectations, and then you, you don't win. And then all the attention that you, that you had because, you know, the Olympics is a focal, you know, focal point in sports at that time, then no one really – cares anymore because it's the olympics are over and so it, you kind of go through this wave of emotion during during the olympics but it's something that i would not trade for um, anything in the world and was, uh, was so blessed and fortunate to be to be a part of that yeah the the phrase is what is it let your praise be as loud as your criticism and i would imagine yeah. in in your situation it, it may have a little bit gone the other way you had a whole lot of praise going in but with that comes criticism on the other side and how do you deal with that do you shut yourself off from those things do you let yourself sort of live in it for a little while um how how does a how does a human sort of take all that in and uh, come out okay on the other side yeah it's hard you know even i you know, as i watch the olympics now there are athletes who have um, there's high expectations and then they don't perform. And with, with with myself, it was yeah, you live in it for for a while, and you try to process it and deal with it. But I think the important part is what you do with it. Do you um, live in it too long, where it, it becomes depressing, or do you um, use it as motivation? Use it as motivation uh, the next year, the next squad to to get better, to to remember, um, you know everything leading up to the Olympics and what you did uh, to, to, to not perform as well as you had. And so you're, you're continuing to use, you're continuing to use that as fuel to, to be uh, the best in the world, to be a, an elite athlete and be better than what you were before. Learning to cope with disappointment isn't the only struggle for most Olympic athletes. Brock told me that finding a way to make ends meet financially is a big concern too. I would say 90% of the athletes struggle uh, for funding. You know, most of the athletes will, um, some athletes work a, a job 
um, to in order to, to finance their their training, which you know is you know if you're not an athlete, that's it. well that makes sense. You have to work, but you know when I was an athlete, I was training six days a week, three to six hours a day. And that was, I would just wasn't going to the gym and lifting some weights and then going home. It was like two and a half hours at the track, sprinting, uh, bounding, um, and then going to the gym for another two, two and a half hours and lifting and lifting weights. And you're exhausted. You just completely um, um, put every, all the energy that you have into that training. And so you need to go home and rest and recover. But if you're working another job or you're doing something else, that's, that's hard to do. So, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, you see all of the, the metal contenders and you see, you know, a, a very small percentage of people who are a feature during the Olympics, you know, and there is a small percentage that they, you know, they benefit financially, but the mo uh, the majority of them, you know, struggle to provide for themselves and and um, to be able to you know a place to stay, um, training expenses, food, and it's just like they're scraping together uh, a way to um, to make the Olympics, to make the national team, and make the Olympics, but then to represent the the United States. Everything is funded really individually in the off season for for training. Did I see you were working with Home Depot for a while throughout your career? I, I was. And so they had a program that was called the Olympic Job Opportunity Program. And what Home Depot did was they, um, you would work part-time hours in the off-season and they would pay you a full-time salary. So quite honestly, that is the only reason I was able to, to compete uh, at the level um, I did. I was able to train at the level. Um, I didn't work a full-time job. I just went in when my schedule um, allowed me. Um, and then, you know, kind of at late 2000s, uh, the market kind of wasn't doing well, if you remember. And, and so they ended that program, it just wasn't uh, financially uh, feasible for them any longer. I would imagine uh, those little orange wheelie carts for the two by fours, you probably push those <laughs> faster than anyone, right? Yeah, but you know, I worked in the paint department. And so really, um, I, I did, I, I didn't know a whole lot of, I, I often would say, uh, let me check with my colleagues on that. And I, I would go, I was really good at mixing paint, you know, pushing some buttons and mi mixing it, but the technical aspect of painting, you know, I, that wasn't my, well, that wasn't my thing. I mean, I think they missed an opportunity to have you pushing the orange wheelie carts, but that's just me. Um, what's the deal with NASCAR? How did that happen? Well, that's an, it's an interesting story. So I made the Olympic team in 2006. I had a hip injury in 2008. Wound up having two hip surgeries, and um, I missed going back to the to the Olympic uh, to the, the, uh, the to the games. And so the team that um, I had been sliding with, actually Steve Holcomb, uh, they wound up making a uh, uh, winning the gold medal. So I'm really excited for them. You know, they're my brothers, and we spent a lot of time sacrificing. Um, to get, you know, to the Olympics, but also kind of devastated. And so uh, I had to figure out what I, what I was going to, what I was going to do next. And so I had, you know, tried my hand at um, being a Jackman for, for NASCAR. And I had a friend of mine who was a, um, he was a NASCAR driver. And so he, he took me through some, some training and uh, um, it was a, a really cool experience. The guys are, uh, very athletic and 
the, I mean, I appreciated the amount of time when a car would pull in and they'd have to uh, run around the car, jack it up, you know, take the, take the wheels off, put them back on, put the tires back on and then go again, you know, take off again. Um, you know, I, I played around with that, but ultimately it didn't, um, I didn't pursue that. You know, I, I tried my hand. I was a stunt man in, in, um, uh, Los Angeles for about a year and a half, but, you know, I just came to a point where, you know, with, with being an athlete, I was investing in, in my body. And I, I, I was on a set of a, of a TV show that I was working on. I'm thinking I'm doing the same thing that I was doing as an athlete. I was, as an athlete, I'm investing in my body. Now I'm investing in my bank account. And, you know, I said, at the end of my life, do I want my legacy to be that I've been only invested in myself? And that was a real turning point for me. Of, I decided I wanted to pursue a career in um, investing in something else or someone else. That leads to uh, your education with with Illinois, specifically in the Geese College of Business, I understand you're a, a fairly recent graduate there. Congratulations on that. What uh, what led to to that decision, and what did you hope that your time with Geese was ultimately going to afford you that you didn't have beforehand? You know, I graduated last spring, so thank you. It was a, it was a fantastic journey. It, it exceeded my expectations of what uh, I thought going into the program. And, you know, as you, as I retired from sport, um, I thought I had a lot of transferable skills, which I did, you know, teamwork, discipline, so forth. But I didn't know how to be a, a, a leader. I didn't know anything about leadership. And I wound up working the last 10 years. I've worked in the humanitarian uh, world and I, I, found myself about um, a year and a half later after retiring from sport, I was living in South Sudan in East Africa. And I ran a food program. I worked for an organization called Samaritan's Purse. And I I ran a food program for 60,000 refugees every month that was, that were cut, that came over from the border from Sudan into South Sudan. And I remember a specific moment. um, I just, was just hired to, 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 to do that. I flew in, you know, you fly in in the middle of the bush, you land in a, on a dirt, um, dirt runway, these all the grass huts. And so you, you, know, you drive to your compound, but in any case, my first meeting with my team, they were South Sudanese and expats. And I thought to myself, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea how to, to lead these people. I, I can go by intuition, but I didn't have much experience doing that. And that began a journey for me of being a learner, right? Of just trying to, you know, I lived in the middle of the bush in a refugee camp. There wasn't much internet there. So books I could buy and bring back. I started to learn more about, more and more about leadership, but it wasn't meeting what I, I needed. And it came to a point where I just wanted to be a better um, leader and decision maker. And I, I did a lot of research on, um, different programs that are available to help me to, to do that. And I came upon uh, on geese and it just, it met every, it checked every box. You know, I had a leadership component. Uh, it was completely online because I was traveling a lot and it was affordable and it just equipped me with the tools that I, um, that I was looking for in order to be, um, to be a leader and to uh, lead my team well and to, to make good decisions for, um, the organization that I was I was working for. Brock's degree from Geese not only taught him the things he wanted and needed to learn, but set him up for a job he knows he's perfect for. 
I'm the executive director of Summit Missions um, International, and we're a, a Christian organization that partners with churches and leaders uh, to provide practical help and spiritual hope across Eastern Europe, really, so people can hear about God's love for them through through Jesus Christ. And um, this is a it's a big leadership role. And so, I th- you know, part of my responsibility is fundraising. So looking, you know looking at what I learned in marketing of like, who is my target audience? How do I, how do I reach them? Is this, is that their correct channel to do so? Um, you know, I could list probably, you know, half a dozen courses, strategic management. We, we looked at our mission and vision and what value we bring and the problem we solve and what's our competitive advantage. Not that we're making money, but you know, there are many faith-based um, humanitarian organizations, like how do we differentiate ourselves from them? Um, and of course, you know, financially, you know, under, not only understanding uh, balance sheets, income and cash flow statements, but then making decisions um, from, from that understanding. So it's just like, I wanted to use one, my experience at Samaritan's Purse, but then my education through my MBA, everything that I learned I wanted to use it to uh, invest in a small but growing Christian organization because, you know, you have so much going on. You're pushing each initiative forward. And so whether it's fundraising or looking at the financial statements or looking at our strategy, relooking at our mission, you know, it's like, yes, that's right. I remember I remember studying that. I remember diving deep into that. Let me go and pull those um uh, the the you know the the frameworks that I have man it's so many frameworks that I, I I love using in my in my current position. Whether it's training his body to be ready for a bobsled run, or training his mind to be ready for a business venture, Brock Kreitzberg has been willing to put in the necessary work. In his job today, Brock is still agile and quick on his feet. He's just wearing a very different kind of suit. Be sure to join us for the next Geese download. In the meantime, you can learn more about the Geese College of Business at geesebusiness.illinois.edu.